This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. I want to take you back to 1947 to listen to a very popular radio show then. The program from the series Escape. It was radio's leading anthology series of high-adventure radio dramas airing on CBS from July 7th of 1947 to September 25th of 54. Tonight's episode is entitled Confession. lost in a London fog, uncertain whether the figures looming around you are real or creatures of your imagination, and somewhere in the wet grayness lurks a murderer from whom you must escape. Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a fog-shrouded city and the terror of a shell-shocked mind as Algernon Blackwood describes them in his ghostly story, Confession. There was no doubt about it. The woman was dead. Her cheek was cold to my touch. The head of the long, sharp hat pin protruded from her breast above the heart. She was dead. Murdered. And I stood there by the bed, my brain whirling crazily. I was alone in an empty house with a murdered woman. And then suddenly fear flashed across my brain and cleared it. I heard the door below open and close. Footsteps. Someone was coming across the downstairs hall. Onto the stairs. Coming up. Up here. In a moment I would be discovered. In a moment someone would walk into this room and see me standing over the body. In a moment my escape would be cut off. Quickly I slipped across the hall and into another of the empty bedrooms. I leaned against the closed door. Breathing heavily. Listening to those steps come closer. Would he look into any of the other bedrooms first? Would I be discovered here? Passed my door and went into the room, straight in, closed the door behind him. Then he knew where to come. I waited a moment, waited for some sound, some gasp of discovery. There was none. Then he knew what to expect. I must escape quickly before he came out of that room. I started down the stairs, carefully, to avoid any sound. And suddenly the door of that room opened. The beam of a flashlight searched down the hall. 
I took the stairs three at a time, burst open the front door, and fled into the street, fled into the sanctuary of the fog. How long and how far I ran, I do not know. I, I could see nothing, feel nothing but the clammy dampness of the fog. I don't know whether he was still following me or not. I ran out of sheer terror, up one street, down another, with no idea of where I was or where I was going. Perhaps I was running in circles. Perhaps I would run right back to the house. Well, I stopped. I leaned heavily against the wall. My hands were shaking as I raised them to my perspiring face. I held them there to steady them. Ran them through my wet hair. My hat. I didn't have it. I'd left my hat back there in that room. On the bed beside that dead woman. And it had my initials in it. Nearby, a street lamp formed a fuzzy ball of yellow in the enveloping murk. And now a figure loomed suddenly beneath it, just as she had materialized so short a time ago under another street light. Or was it the same one? Was it she again? Was it he, the one who was following me? Was it real at all? Perhaps it was only a creature of my madness. My dear sir, you're ill. I... Oh, hero, uh... oh, let me help you. Why, you're almost ready to fall. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, just lean on my arm. Yes. You are real, aren't you? Real? Huh. I don't understand. I say, you're very near collapse, you know. And I happen to be a doctor. Luckily, too, you're just outside my very house. Come in for a moment, won't you? Why, I... You're very kind. Uh, yes, I will, if it's... Not too much trouble for you? None at all, my dear chap. Please do. Within five minutes, I was seated in a comfortable chair before a toasting fire, sipping a hot cup of tea. I could feel my nerves relaxing, but the traces of my illness must have been clear on my face because my host observed... Your trouble is shell shock, isn't it? Why... Yes, how did you know? I've been in the service, and I'm a doctor. Of course, I, I only meant I'm supposed to be recovered, or almost. But uh, I got lost in the fog, felt ill suddenly. Terrified, you know. I know. You should never have been out on a night like this. If you've got far to go, you'd better let me put you out. You're very kind, very kind indeed, but I, I don't want to be in any trouble. No trouble at all. I'd like to be of help. It's the least we veterans can do for each other. Oh, the blasted war. Thank goodness it's over. You're not English, are you? No, Canadian. I haven't been demobilized yet. I'm still in the army hospital at Regent's Park under the care of Dr. Henry. Ah, oh, yes, yes. Very good man. I'd say he's done well by you. Up till tonight, I mean. Yes. Of course, we had no idea there would be a fog. I still get in a panic when I feel all alone. Well, that's usual, but then there was something more than that tonight, wasn't there? What do you mean? Simply that you've had rather a severe shock quite recently, haven't you? How, how did you know that? My dear chap, I'm a doctor. My business to know. You were in much too agitated a state when I found you for me to suppose it could have been done simply by the fog. And uh, if I may hazard another guess, I should say it would be a relief to you and, and wise as well if you could unburden yourself to someone who would understand. Am I not right? 
someone who would understand. That's just it. I doubt if there is anyone like that. It's so incredible. Oh, the more incredible, the greater your need to tell it. Repression in cases like yours can be dangerous, as, as you must know. You think you've hidden it, but it bides its time and it comes up later causing a lot of trouble. Confession, you know. Confession is good for the soul. Yes, I suppose you are right. But it is so wildly oh, unbelievable. Since we're strangers, my belief or disbelief can make no difference. And I think I can promise you in advance that I shall believe all you have to say. Well, but I've got to tell somebody about it soon anyway. I... So a cigarette uh, to help with telling? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'd better start back at the very beginning of the adventure, then. It started today at the sanitarium. I've been there for some months, and today, when Dr. Henry called to check on me, I knew... Well, young man, going... you're as fit as a prize heifer and twice as frisky. The diet here must agree with you. I have no complaints, Doctor, but if I'm well again, then I'd like to get back into circulation. Will you listen to him, nurse, rushing things as usual? You'd think he didn't like us here. Oh, <laughs> the way he bothers us to let him go into town, I'm sure of it, Doctor. He's getting so healthy, he's bursting at the seams. There, you see? How about it, Doctor. Can't I just have a day or an evening in town? What's the great attraction in that dirty place? Some girl, no doubt? Well, yes, that is in a way. I, I met her in France. She's a Red Cross girl. She's invited me to stop in for tea if I'm up in London. And, well, it's just that I'd, I'd feel human again, seeing a girl having tea, a cigarette, chatting. That's all. Young man, I not only approve of your day in town, I'm prescribing it. It'll do you good. You've got to start getting used to society again anyway. And you think I can manage it alone? Why not? You get around the neighborhood by yourself well enough, don't you? There's nothing so very different about London. Certainly nothing to be afraid of. No, of course not. Uh, call the young lady and find out the directions, where to get off the underground, what turns to take and so on. Uh, go in the daytime, return before dark. No danger of getting lost. Should be simple. Nothing to it. Do you good. Then this means I'm getting better. I'll be able to go home soon? There you go. Rushing things again. But yes, I think perhaps we're on the last leg. Oh, uh, that'll be all, nurse. Yes, Dr. Henry. Now, tell me, young man, what about your friends? No, doctor. I think they've deserted me. I don't see them anymore. No more ghosts. No more dead comrades stopping in for a chat. Good. For how long now? Oh, several weeks at least. I can hardly remember when I last saw one. Thought you saw <laughs> Yes, thought. Of course, in the dark room at night, sometimes the uh, that's shadows... That's not are... quite the same thing. Lots of well people fancy they see the shadows move at night. Especially after they've been reading some penny dreadful. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Uh, at any rate, you can distinguish between the real people and the unreal now. And that's a big step, considering how you were a few months ago. Well, it's only when I feel completely alone, cut off that the old panic begins a little, but not as much as before. Many people don't like to feel alone and cut off, but they can fight down that panicky feeling, nip it in the bud, and so will you in time. But I must warn you, a severe shock could undo all our work. By all means, avoid shock. <laughs> avoid shock, he said. Very funny, isn't it? But who could have known then what would happen? How could I have suspected as I went about planning my day in town, my holiday? I called the girl, arranged our tea party, 
I was to be at her little house in Morley Place at four. Not so easy to find the first time. With your Canadian backwoods instinct, she'll probably manage it better than any Londoner. <laughs> yes, I'm sure I will. It's near South Kensington Station, then. Exactly. You change at Piccadilly Circus. Yes. Without leaving the underground station. And come to South Kent. That's three streets left from there, then two right, one more left, and right again into Morley Place. It's really not far. Oh, I'll find it, all right. Now, don't go to any great bother. Oh, you just leave that to me. This is a special occasion, you know. Till four, then. Until four. Yes. Thanks. And so it all started out as a cheerful adventure. And everything went well into the city. I made my change underground at Piccadilly, took the local to South Kensington Station. And there I came up at the surface again. And when I walked out, I stepped into a solid, opaque blanket of white fog. I could hear the traffic, the rumble of the city around me. I could hear footsteps, an occasional muffled voice. But I could see almost nothing. This is how a blind man feels, then. The only objects of relief from that dreadful enveloping gray wall were an occasional blur of yellow from a street lamp or a motor car headlight, a glimmering patch from some big-lighted shop window here and there, and the figures, the figures of other people passing by, dark and floating and indistinct. Or were they people? Might they not be those phantom figures again? Just like the ones that haunted me before I went into the sanitarium. Ghostly, blurred figures of dead comrades from Dunkirk and Abbeville and the mud of Belgium. Ah, here comes another one. I can hear his cane tapping. Look closely now, make sure. There. He looked real enough, didn't he? They are real, I'm positive of it, and I'm not alone. They're all around me. But even as I told myself this, the old panic was growing inside. Here now, old fellow, you've got to get hold of yourself. Next one comes along, speak up. Speak up to him. Ask him the way to Molly Place. Ask, can you put me on the trail to Molly Place? Just like that. You'll see. Here now, here he comes. Ask the way. Beg pardon, can you put me I on... I say, is this right for the tube station, do you know? I'm utterly lost, <laughs> I want South Kensington. Why, why, yes, I have just come from there. Straight along, I think. Oh, thanks, awfully. Oh, but I say, can you put me on the trail to... Morley, please? He's gone. Well, no matter, he was real enough. He spoke up like a real person, all right. Maybe if he next... Oh, oh I say, I beg your pardon. Oh, I'm frightfully sorry. I, I didn't see you and you standing still. Oh, I'm afraid I, I must be lost. Can you direct me to Morley, please? Oh, dear, I think you've missed your turning. You, you'd have to double back a street and maybe two and take the first turn to the right and go one street and then double back two and then left again and you'll come. I say, thanks. That was first right and then... She's gone. Disappeared. Like a ghost. <laughs> panic was rising in me. They were real people, yes, but they appeared and disappeared so disconcertingly quickly. And when I turned off 
down the main street. There, there were fewer of them. I turned again and again. But I couldn't remember the directions. Suddenly, I, I knew I was lost. And now I was in some little backwater where passers-by were rare. Where no one came. Where I was alone. Now the panic swept over me. I stumbled on a curb. My cane swept empty air. I fell to the icy pavement. I was shaking so that I couldn't rise to my feet. I crawled across the open space of the street on my hands and knees. Only when I crossed the curb and felt a warm wall could I stand up again. And then I stood there, shaken and frantic. Molly Place must be very close, the little Red Cross girl waiting with her warm fire and hot tea. But where? Where? Suddenly, in the yellow blur of the nearest street lamp, a faint darkening of the fog caught my eye. It was not a figure this time. Only the shadow of the pole, grotesquely magnified. No. No, it moved. It came toward me. It was a figure. A woman. It came right up to me. Fear gripped me, and then I remembered the doctor's advice. Don't ignore them. Treat them as real. Speak to them and go with them. You will soon prove their unreality then. And they will leave you. And so I gripped the wall behind me and spoke to her. Lost your way like myself, haven't you, ma'am? Do you know where we are at all? Morley Place I'm looking for. Where am I? Well, I say you're more frightened than I am. Uh, may I help you? I'm lost. I've lost myself. I can't find my way back. Same here. I'm terrified of being alone, too. I've had shell shock, you know. Uh, let's go together. We'll find our way together, eh? Who are you? Name's O'Reilly, Canadian. I'm going to have tea with a friend in Morley Place. Uh, what's your address? Do you know the name of the street here? I came out suddenly. Unexpectedly. I can't find my way home again. Just when I was expecting him oh, to... Oh, say steady, ma'am. He may be there now, waiting for me at this very moment. And I can't get back. Have you any idea of the direction, ma'am? Any at all? We'll go together. Listen. Then. I hear him calling. I remember. Wait, ma'am. Wait. Don't leave me here alone. I'm going with you. Wait. She was running fast through the fog. It was all I could do to keep up with her. But I felt I must not lose her or my own nerves would go to pieces. How she found her way in the fog, running so quickly, I didn't know, but I kept close on my heels, running hard. I could smell a faint perfume in the air, trailing behind her. A faintly familiar odor, but not pleasant. And then suddenly she stopped and turned into the gate, so suddenly that I almost bumped into her. Oh, <laughs> is this in? You found it, then. Uh, may I come in with you for a moment? Perhaps you'll let me telephone my doctor. Doctor? Yes, Dr. Henry at the Army Hospital. I'm in his care, you know. My home is somewhere here. I'm near it. I must get back in time. For him. I must. He's coming to me. I, I say, ma'am. But she turned and walked toward the house. For a moment I hesitated. This woman was acting very strangely. But no matter, she was at least real and I needed help. Quickly, I followed her up the steps across the porch. The door was ajar. She slipped through and I followed into the dark house. It was so dark inside, I couldn't see anything at first. I, I stopped, groping. But she went on quickly, easily, as if she knew the way. She was ignoring me completely. I heard her steps cross the hall. Go up the stairs quickly. I waited and listened. She walked along the hall upstairs. Where? Oh, where is he? I must find him. And now the hair on my neck felt as if it were rising. Was she, after all, another of my figures? 
Was she unreal, too? I heard her open a door upstairs, go in and close it after her. Then there was silence, profound silence. And I was alone in a dark, unoccupied house. The white-covered furniture in the hallway loomed like ghosts. And there was no sound. I felt my panic coming back. But she was upstairs. And at least she was companionship. my way up the stairs, along the upstairs hall. There was no sign of life. Where are you? I want to help you. Which room are you in? There was no answer. But as I put my hand on a table to steady myself, I, I felt something. It was a candle stump. With a gasp of relief, I took it up and lighted it. Now I could see a little. One by one, I tried the bedrooms. They were dusty and unused. The furniture covered, the mattresses rolled up on the beds. They were all alike. Until I opened the last door. Instantly, I knew this was it. I smelled the perfume. Only now I recognized it, understood why it was unpleasant to me. It was the smell of a hospital, of chloroform. And there was the woman... Her dark fur coat wrapped around her, her jewels just showing at the neck. And she was stretched out on the bed, motionless. Instantly, I... I knew she was dead. In the next instant, I thought I would go mad. The blood on her face was congealing. Her skin was cold. I knew then that she'd been dead for an hour at least. And that what I saw in the street was not real. This was the shock that Dr. Henry had warned me to avoid. And what happened then? Well, I... I heard the door open up downstairs. Someone came in. The one she'd been expecting, no doubt. And suddenly I, I realized the... the danger of my being found there beside a woman who had obviously been murdered. Well, I slipped into another bedroom, and when he went into that room with her, I slipped out and crept downstairs. I stumbled and he heard me, and I came out. I ran down and out into the fog, into the street, and away. How long I ran or where, I don't know. When I was exhausted, I, I stopped. And then you came and found me. Well, what do you think? <laughs> Tall tale, isn't it? Yes. Strange, but not incredible. I see no reason to disbelieve anything you've told me. Things equally remarkable, equally incredible, happen every day in a big city. I know from personal experience. Oh, I could give you many instances. But the woman, I saw her, and yet she was already dead. Such things are hard to explain. Perhaps cannot be explained, except, of course, your mind in its present state may still play tricks on you. Perhaps you saw a woman in the fog and followed her. You may have missed her and only thought you saw her going to that house. But what about the dead woman? She was real enough. Perhaps, perhaps not. She, too, may have been just fantasy. You may never have left the street. No. No, I'm sure of that, at least. I must believe it. She was real, and the man who came up the stairs was real. If I didn't believe that, I think I should go mad. Yes, perhaps that is important. Then, let me see. 
have you any proof of what you saw? Something, perhaps, that you carried away with you? None. But... But wait. I left something there. My hat. I left it on the bed beside her body. My initials were in it. Ah. And so, if it was all real, I shall be getting a visit from the police one day soon. Perhaps. And then I'll know. And I'll be charged with murder. I don't think so. You think the police would believe this fantastic story? As I told you, many strange things happen in a city like this. For instance, I knew of a similar case many years ago. Strangely similar case. Almost a coincidence. Would you like to hear it? I... Yes, I, I suppose so. It happened during the last war. A colleague of mine, a surgeon now dead, married a charming girl, young and beautiful... He was wealthy, and they lived comfortably for many years. They seemed happy together. Then came the war, and he went overseas. His income was stopped, of course. The big house closed. His wife found life not so pleasant as before. And somehow she blamed her new hardships on him. You see, she was devoid of imagination, without any power for sacrifice. But she was still young and beautiful. The inevitable young man came along to console her. He was rich. They planned to go off somewhere. Only by chance, the husband came back from overseas suddenly. Just in the nick of time. Well, he should have let her go. He was well rid of her, I'd say. Well rid of her, yes. Only he decided to make the riddance final. He decided to kill her and her lover. You see, he loved her. He planned the time and place carefully. They met, he knew, in the big house, now closed. He waited for them there. The plan failed, however, in one important detail. She came at the appointed time, but without her lover. She found death waiting for her. Oh, completely painless death. But the lover did not come. The door had been left open for him. The house was deserted and it was a foggy night like tonight. But he did not come. Instead... A stranger came. Hi. And where was the surgeon all this time? Waiting outside, concealed in the fog. He saw the man go in, and he followed him to kill him. But the man was a stranger. He came in by chance, like you, to shelter from the fog. I think that I should... Why, uh, what is the matter, sir? Well, I, I really must be going. Oh, of course, if you wish. Thank you for your kindness and hospitality. Oh, it's been a pleasure, young man. I enjoyed your story, although I confess I expected one a little different. Uh, your coat. Thank you. I'll walk with you to the door and give you the directions. Ah, you're in luck. I think the fog's lifting a bit. Doctor, may I ask, your friend, the surgeon... Was he ever caught? Ah, that's the part of the story I don't know. He was clever enough so that I doubt it. Unless he told somebody, made a confession. I see. And even so, unless that other person had some proof. Oh, by the way, you, you can't walk about in the fog without a hat. Here, uh, it's an extra one of mine. You needn't trouble to return it. Thank you. Thank you very much.
stormed out of his consulting room with a hat on my head. In ten minutes, I was at the tube station. It was only there that I permitted myself to take off the hat and look at it. It was my own. The hat I had left on the bed beside the dead woman. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And tonight brought you Confession by Algernon Blackwood. Adapted for radio by John Dunkel. With Bill Conrad as O'Reilly, Ramsey Hill as the doctor, and Peggy Weber as the woman in the fog. Music was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Next week... You are trapped in the dark maze of the native quarter of Mozambique. A dead man at your feet, the police closing in around you. And beside you is a girl with whom you must escape. Next week, we escape with Percival Gibbon's fast-moving adventure, Second Class Passenger. Good night, then, until this same time next week, when again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for George Burns and Gracie Allen next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for that couple who did it all. Burlesque, vaudeville, radio, TV, the movies. George Burns and Gracie Allen. From Hollywood, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Spam. There's a fun George and Gracie. Uh, thank you very much. Hello, Bud. Hello, Gracie. Say, you should have been with me Saturday night. I went to a party at Irene Dunn's house. By the way, Bud, uh, what's Irene Dunn doing? 
Son doing? George, what kind of English is that? What kind of English is that? Uh, I said, what's Irene done doing? You mean, what's Irene done? Gracie, isn't Irene Dunn a motion picture star? Well, yes. I saw her in My Favorite Wife. Well, that's the picture that Irene Dunn did. Dunn did? <laughs> oh, that's even worse than Dunn doing. <laughs> well, George, maybe I can help you. You see, Gracie, Irene Dunn told me that... Uh, Dunn told have... you? <laughs> oh, what did Irene Dunn told you all, Rochester? Look, Gracie, when Irene Dunn does a picture, it doesn't mean that Irene Dunn done a picture. It means Irene Dunn did a picture. And the picture that Dunn did is what Dunn's done. Do you feel all right, Daddy? But why did you have to stop us? Señor Burns, you say una cosa muy graciosa de esta película. That's the guitar player, yes. What is it, Señor A? I saw that picture with that Irene Dunn and that Kenny Grunt. He's wonderful. Kenny Grunt? See. You mean Cary Grant? Remember in the picture when she puts her arms around him and hugged him and squeezed him? Yes. Well, Kenny Grunt? <laughs> Hardy, will you keep that South American park your carcass quiet? Okay, Poopsie. And stop with that Poopsie. That, uh, that's what the girl called me here last week, and now it's all over. Oh, George, I knew I had something to tell you. You know that sweet little girl who was up here last week? The one you promised to make your new partner on the radio? You mean Elsie Trallifast? Yeah, that's the one, Poopsie. Uh, stop calling me Poopsie. <laughs> and I was only fooling when I promised to put her on the radio. Don't tell me that she's taking it to heart. Oh, worse than that, she's taking it to court. She's taking it to court? Yeah, and when she told me that she was suing you for $10,000, I told her a thing or a couple. $10,000? Yes, I said to her, I said, I said, I said, Elsie, by the time you get through buying the clothes to wear in front of the jury, paying your lawyer and paying your court expenses, you'll have nothing left out of the $10,000. Well, did What's she... the sense of it? That's right. Did she see your point? She certainly did. Oh, good. Now she's suing you for 200000 <laughs> You ad-libbed 100 <laughs> Two, 200000 <laughs> Oh, don't worry about it, George. A friend of mine was sued for $150,000, and he didn't pay a cent. Well, Artie, I'd like to meet him. Well, you can talk to him tomorrow. Well, good. Visiting hours are from 2 to 4. <laughs> well, I'm certainly in a lovely mess. Now I'll have to get a lawyer, and it'll probably cost me thousands of dollars. Oh, not the lawyer I hired for you. You hired a lawyer for me? Yeah, and he's very cheap. Well, how do you know he's cheap? Well, I had lunch with him today, and I had to pay my own check. <laughs> Gracie, did anybody ever tell you that you were a little imbecilic? Yes, yes. a picnic one. I see. But I guess he didn't mean it, because I never saw him again. <laughs> Everything happens to me. A lawsuit for $100,000, for $200,000. Uh, Senor Burns? Uh, what? If you're looking for a good lawyer, get my uncle. He handled the Dreyfus case. The Dreyfus case? You mean Alexander Dreyfus from Devil's Island? No, the taxi Dreyfus from Coney Island. $200,000. I wouldn't pay that Elsie Trallifast a nickel. Good for you, George. That'll help me a whole lot. How'll it help you? I'll be able to tell our listeners that both you and Spam are in the can. <laughs> Well, that hit the spot. <laughs> Thanks, George. I thought so. And here I was saving my money for when I was old and decrepit. Yeah, and just when you are, look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> 
This whole thing is absurd. Well, George is right. That Elsie is nothing but a gold digger, and I told her plenty, too. I, I told her that before she'd get a dime from you, George, you'd draw all your money out of the bank. Ah, oh, that wouldn't frighten a girl like Elsie. Oh, it wouldn't, huh? It's scared as though that she tied up your bank account. <laughs> tied up my bank account? Oh. Look, George passed out. Well, I can't understand it, Bud. Wouldn't you think he'd be interested in what I'm telling him? While the boss is out, the smoothies, Babs, Charlie, and Little will sing Cherry Berry Bean. Another spoonful of this medicine. Oh, oh. Gracie, that's extract of bitters. That's extract of bitters. That's terrible stuff. I know. Hold his head while I give him another spoonful. Oh, oh. Another spoonful. Oh, oh. Gracie, you're spilling half of that medicine on his chin. Wipe it off. I can't. It burns my fingers. Oh, oh. Well, listen, George, I've got some bad news. Oh, gee, still out, huh? Yeah, hold his head, Artie. Oh, oh. Well, listen. Listen. Elsie's sweetheart is outside, and he's a big bruiser, and I can't hold him, and he says he's going to come in here and mop up the floor with George. Shall I call for help? Oh, no, no. He and George can mop up this floor without any help. <laughs> Gee, this is awful. What do we do? Well, uh, how about you and me going to Cyril's tonight? Oh. Look, is George coming, too? No, just you and I. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh. He's coming out of his faint. Shall I tell him about Elsie's sweetheart, that big bruiser who's coming here to beat him up? No, no, not that. He'll fight again. He'll faint again. <laughs> Oh, where am I? Oh, I know. Hmm. Boy, this lawsuit has certainly left a bit of taste in my mouth. Gracie, that's Elsie's sweetheart. Hey, sound man, that's probably my lawyer. Let him in. Mr. Burns, before I open the door, do your insurance policies carry double indemnity in case of death by accident? Well, yes. You are a very lucky man, weren't you? <laughs> Will you let my lawyer in? Well, you asked for it. Who's George Burns? Uh-oh, here comes Malicious. <laughs> I'm George Burns. Oh, so you're George Burns. That's so right. What about you and Elsie Chalapan? He, well, he, he doesn't know her. He, he's never heard of her, have you, George? Certainly I know Elsie oh. Chalapan. <laughs> I know her very well. And, mister, if you're going to help me out of this legal jam, I might as well tell you the truth. Good. I'll give it to you straight from the shoulder. Oh, vice versa. Just how well did you know Elsie Chalafast? Well, I'm not a man who likes to boast, but on the other hand, this is no time to hold anything back. Calling Dr. Kildare. Calling Dr. Kildare. <laughs> uh, one night about a week ago, I was taking her home in a taxi, and I put my arm around her. Like this? Yeah, but I held her a little tighter. You mean like this? Oh, wait a minute. Not that tight. <laughs> oh, that was quite a crush. Yeah, it couldn't have killed me. And after I took Elsie home, we were standing in the hallway. Uh, Senor Burns? Standing in the hallway with Elsie, you see. Senor Burns? And uh, we were both in the hallway. Hey, Pupsy! <laughs> what is it, Senor Lee? Uh, can I have your tooth powder after you get your teeth knocked out? <laughs> I'm not going to get my teeth knocked out. I know something that you don't know. <laughs> Artie, will you keep that stale character quiet? So we were standing in the hallway, and I put my lips against Elsie's, and she... George, George, shall I play my number now? What, uh, what number? Get out of town before it's too late. Artie, you're not playing that number. No, no, this is the number you're playing, Artie. Let me get at the piano. When April showers will come your way, be careful, Pupsy, of what you say. We're trying to tell you, take it on the lamb. This fellow isn't what you think he is. If you want to continue for Sam, just keep your mouth shut. Oh, quiet, quiet. Anyway, mister, I was standing in the hallway with Elsie, and she threw her arms around me. Solomon, Solomon, stop slamming the door. You know I hate bangs. You hate bangs? Then keep your mouth shut. You've said enough. Oh, quiet, quiet. Yeah, what's going on? This guy behind you is pretty tough. You'll be looking up at daisies that you won't be able to smell. Wah, 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 wah. Whenever Elsie's boyfriend comes. Good evening, Forest Lawn. Now, 
Or what's going on here? Here I am worrying about $200,000 lawsuit and everybody singing. Say, did Elsie ever happen to mention her boyfriend? Yeah, I heard her say something. She's going around with some dope or something. Dope? Hold your hats, boys. Here it comes. You did say dope, didn't you? Yeah, some big dope or something. Sound man, why are you opening the door? There's nobody going out. That's what you think. Hey, Mr. Burns, I think we can talk this over better in the alley. Yeah, it's too noisy in here. Come on, let's go. Mr. George, George, don't tell what Irene Dunn done. He'll be done. What Irene Dunn done? What's that? Uh, Irene Dunn told me it's Elsie's boyfriend. Boy, Irene Dunn? Who's afraid of Elsie's boyfriend? Why, with one hand, I can crumple him to pieces. I'm Elsie's boyfriend. And with the other hand, I can... Oh... What happened? Oh, George is saying it. Artie, hold his head while I give him some more medicine. Yeah, when he comes to... When he comes to, tell him that he's not only being sued for $200,000 for breach of contract, but I'm suing him for 300000 for alienation of affection. Goodbye, everybody. And goodbye, poopsie. Well, what are we going to do with George? He fainted again. Can't anybody do something? I can do something. We'll do it. I'll be delightful. Yeah. Yo tengo buena suerte. Con todos los jueguitos, pero lo que es mi fuerte es el juego de amorcitos. Hay una muchachita quien yo quiero conquistar, les apuesto lo que quieran, que la voy a ganar. Se llama nada, ella es mi nada, mi nada no hace nada más que amar. Yo quiero a nada, no hago nada. Más que de mi nada soñar Cuando beso a mi nada Nada beso al parecer Pero nada tiene todo Para hacerme arder Yo quiero a nada No hace nada Nada más que amar Hold his head. I'll give him another spoonful. Boop, boop. Gracie, is this medicine good for fainting? Oh, it's marvelous for fainting. How do you know? Well, every time I give my daddy a spoonful, he faints. Oh, oh. What happened? Who am I? George Burns. Where am I? George Burns. Oh, who types these things, anyway? <laughs> where, where am I? On the spam program. What's, what spam? What spam? Boy, you must be groggy if you don't remember what Spam is. Why, George, Spam is what you have fried with eggs for breakfast. Spam is what you have for lunch, sliced cold in sandwiches. Spam is what you have baked whole for dinner. Oh, yes, but I remember now. And you ask me what's Spam. Why, George, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, I'm a bad boy, yeah. <laughs> Why, everybody knows that Spam is tender, delicious meat, all ready to eat as it comes from the can. All right, but I'm sorry. Easy to serve, economical to use. Spam is the reason housewives are spending less time in the kitchen and still giving their families good food on the dot. I apologize, but Spam is wonderful. Well, it's thanks, wonderful. George. Yes, I didn't mean it, but oh. I'm so sorry. Okay, sit down. <laughs> now, ladies. Here's a grand suggestion for dinner tomorrow night. Open a can of Spam, S-P-A-M. As I said before, it's all ready to eat, so just slice Spam and serve with tomatoes, corn on the cob, a simple dessert, and your favorite beverage. You'll have nothing but compliments from the whole gang because the meaty flavor, the grand taste of Spam, satisfies even the huskiest appetite. And when you try the other recipes on the label, you'll discover Spam has dozens of uses, cold or hot. 
So remember, you'll spend a lot of time out of the kitchen when you keep Spam on your pantry shelf. It needs no refrigeration. Get a supply when you shop tomorrow. Just say to your food dealer, I want Spam. I want Spam. Slice it, dice it, fry it, bake it, cold or hot, Spam hits the spot. Oh, now I remember. Elsie Trellifast's boyfriend. What happened to him? He's gone. Uh, I wish that lawyer would come. Being sued for $200,000. Why, if I lose that case, it'll be like taking the shirt off my back. Well, here comes Striptease Burns now. <laughs> Striptease Burns? Yeah, because her boyfriend is suing you for 300000 300000 Oh. Artie, hold his head. Oh, oh. <laughs> Say, George, George looks flushed. Has anybody got a thermometer? Uh, here's one, Senor Bug. I got it off the wall. That's a barometer, not a thermometer. In his condition, he'll know the difference? <laughs> oh, give it to me, bud. Open his mouth, Artie. Oh, my, this is awful. Well, what's wrong with George? What does it say? He's partly cloudy in the southern region. <laughs>
iPad? Oh. Bud, <laughs> take the barometer out of George's mouth. Oh, here it is. And now put his teeth back in. <laughs> now give him another spoonful. <laughs> Gracie, that's the 30th spoonful you've given him. It hasn't done him any good. I know. Well, then why are you making him finish all that terrible medicine? I want to get my nickel back in the bottle. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh, where is he? Who? The lawyer. He's supposed to be here. Oh, my head. Oh, what's the matter, George? I don't feel well. I've got spots in front of my eyes. Oh, then that stuff I gave you is a fake. A fake? Yeah, look what it says here in the bottle. Good for removing spots. <laughs> Gracie, that's Carbona. Uh, Senor Burns? Yes, what is it, Senor Lee? Uh, once I had a date with Brenda and Carbona. <laughs> Brenda and Carbona? See? Si. Carbona makes you sick. Brenda's a doll? <laughs> Howdy, will you send that broken down guitar player back to local 802? Oh, this must be him. Come in. Uh, Mr. Burns? Yes? My name is Jules Covey, attorney at law. I'm calling with reference to the Elsie Tolifas case. Well, I'm glad you're here, Mr. Covey. As I'd like to explain the whole thing to you. Well, that's what attorneys are for, Mr. Burns. Well, now, to begin with... I did take Elsie Trallifass out a few times. She was young and pretty, and after all, I'm only human. George, don't say anything you can't prove. <laughs> I've got that down, Mr. Burns. Well, anyway, the first night I, I met her, we drove out to the beach, and the radio was playing, and I had the pot of gold on. Is that prettier than a derby? <laughs> Will you be quiet? Go ahead, Mr. Burns. I'm writing it down. So we were driving along, and I kept telling her how pretty she was and how smart she was, and pretty soon we came to a lonely spot, and I ran out of compliments. Well, that's a new one. Most fellows run out of gas. Gracie, for your information, there are lots of couples who don't neck in parked cars. Yeah, the woods are full of them. <laughs> All right, so maybe I kissed her a few times. But please, Gracie, it's very important that the lawyer hears my story. I've got that down, Mr. Burns. Of course, that wouldn't look very good to a jury, so when we, we get to court, Mr. Colby, let's cut out the kissing. You mean you and he'll just hold hands? <laughs> Gracie, will you keep still? Go ahead, Mr. Burns, I've got that down. Well, you can tell the jury that I'm a man of very fine character. George, Mr. Colby just met you. He doesn't even know you. Well, if he doesn't know, George, then he can say it. <laughs> ah, well, this cast is always kidding me like this, Mr. Colby But uh, they'll be glad to be character witnesses for me, won't you, boys? Oh, you bet your life we will, George I'll be glad to stand up in court and tell them what a wonderful guy you are Oh, thanks, but uh, how much does it pay? <laughs> you know, now you've got me so confused, I don't know which way to turn Oh, a Los Angeles driver, huh? <laughs> A lot of fine friends. Senor Burns? What is it, Senor Lee? For 50 cents, I will tell the jury that you are a perfect gentleman. 50 cents, huh? Okay. I won't pay it. All right, so I'll say you're good for nothing. <laughs> you got that down, Mr. Colby? Poor George, he started out looking for a character witness, and look what happened. No witness? No character. <laughs> oh, keep still. Anyway, Mr. Colby, I met this Elsie Trallifast in a restaurant, and you never saw anybody eat so much in your life. She ordered a double porterhouse steak, and in two seconds, she looked up at me, and what do you think she said? I've got that down, Mr. Burns. (laughs) 
that was exactly what she said. You see, it really was a lot of innocent fun. Oh, so that's what happened. Well, not exactly. <laughs> that's what I want you to tell the jury. If the opposing side knew the real facts, I wouldn't have a leg to stand on. You see, between you and me, I did promise to put Elsie Trellifass on the radio. <laughs> I see what you mean, Mr. Burns. And believe me, I can't possibly lose this case. Uh, uh, good day. Good day. Now, there's a great lawyer. See, Gracie? He says he can't lose. Oh, that's what he says. I'll bet your lawyer will beat him. <laughs> My lawyer? My lawyer? Yes. Who was that? Oh, Trellifass's lawyer. Elsie Trellifass! Oh, Artie, hold his head. <laughs> Before George and Gracie return to say goodnight... They want me to tell you that Spam is a mighty good mealtime hint for your household tomorrow and every day. Ask for Spam, S-P-A-M, when you shop tomorrow and try the easy recipes on the label. Well, thanks, bud. Well, Gracie, say goodnight. Oh, good night. And by the way, George, here's some good news. You know, it didn't do Elsie Trellifast any good to tie up your money. Swell, Gracie, why? Well, I found out that your bank just failed. Oh. Oh, Artie, hold his head. Well, will George come to by next week? Will he win the case? Will he have to pay $100,000? What will happen? Who cares? Good night. <laughs> Listen again next Monday night, same time, same station, for George Burns and Gracie Allen, with Artie Shaw and his orchestra and the smoothies, brought to you by Hormel and Spam. Until then, this is Bud Heaston reminding you to remember that cold or hot, spam hits the spot. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Inner Sanctum, followed by Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell, Paul Stringer, and Justin Eacock for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.